This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Help us understand, those of us people like me, who only do faculty development at the the national level, if you will, the big school level, compared to what it looks like when it happens inside a department or at the state level. What Have you noticed or observed anything? My general feeling is that we need to do both that departments, every department probably needs some local faculty development activity. And the notion that we're so unique and different and special, frankly, I have not found to actually be very accurate. I used to be the director of the teaching center for our host campus before I moved to the School of Medicine. And really, good teaching is good teaching, and there's contextual issues. (laughs) But the bigger issue is about how to develop great teachers or great researchers or writers or, you know, how to help somebody with their CV to prepare for promotion. And those don't have that much variance. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Megan Palmer. Megan is the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs, Professional Development, and Diversity, and the Associate Professor in Emergency Medicine who focuses on faculty development, and an Associate Professor of Higher Education in the School of Education at Indiana University. She gets the privilege of working with one of my girl crushes, Dr. Mary Dankosky. She, Mary Dankosky, is the executive associate dean there at Indiana. And Mary's been on the podcast and was just raving about the work that Megan does. And so, Megan, welcome to the Faculty Factory Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you, Dr. Palmer. Um, Mary was talking to us a lot about all the great work that you do at Indiana University and how we all know that you are the largest medical school in the country and um, a lot of the innovative programs you're doing there. And she kind of detailed a lot of cool things and said to me that we really needed to talk with you. And so why don't you tell us uh, what are the innovative, cool things that are going on at Indiana that you're involved in and talk to us more about this faculty development evidence stuff. Sure. I think a lot of what we do is not dissimilar that, you know, what other faculty development groups and faculty affairs folks do across medical schools and even beyond medical schools and higher education broadly. One of the things that we really built our program on and have continued to really stress is having a body of evidence and really being able to collect information about how well are we doing, either how well we, the faculty, are our faculty vital and healthy and contributing or our leaders, our chairs in specific, but we've gone even beyond our chairs. So we have developed a number of tools that we periodically uh, ask the community to respond to, and it gives us some longitudinal data about how individuals are doing, both individuals, um, certain types of faculty, certain groups of faculty, so women associate professors or uh, URM faculty at a certain rank or in certain kinds of departments, and then also a view of how we're doing as a school and then departments or leaders in our school as well. So specifically, we have a faculty vitality survey that we developed and we've administered and has actually been administered at some other medical schools and dental schools and schools of nursing as well. And it's not dissimilar uh, to the AAMC's Faculty Forward Survey. And that gives us a sense of how engaged are our faculty, how satisfied are they, are they involved in different kinds of professional development activities, what is their perception of the climate and leadership and the culture of the institution, and then a lot about sort of their own personal drive. Do they feel like they get to make decisions about how they spend their time and their career and their career pursuing the things that are interesting to them specifically? So the Faculty Vitality Survey we administer every third year, and as I said, it gives us a measure of kind of how we're doing, but also to find areas where we might need some more development. And so specifically, we've seen patterns around associate professors, which is not unusual (laughs) in higher ed broadly and in academic medicine that Associate professors are less engaged, less satisfied, sort of at a point of their career of kind of needing to restabilize and figure out what's next. And so then we've had some very specific 
programming and development for associate professors as a result of that finding. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the surveys that we do. And the other um, is a leadership assessment, sort of a chair 360. It's for more than just our chairs. So it's for major leaders of centers, research centers, as well as our executive associate deans and the dean all get evaluated as well. But it's not, I don't truly call it a 360 because it's really from the academic lens. So it's faculty who are rating the leaders. It's not everybody in a department, in an academic department. So the staff or the learners aren't um, weighing in on that particular instrument. It's really from the faculty angle since we're the faculty development unit in the school. And that tool similarly gives us insight both about just general performance of specific individuals um, but also patterns. So are there specific areas in which all our leaders seem to be doing exceedingly well, or are there particular areas where our leaders aren't doing as well? And then we have a leadership series that we offer, so it gives us an opportunity to really hone in on areas where either the leaders themselves have self-assessed, you know, that they're lower than they would hope they would be in certain competency areas, or their colleagues have said either their peers or the faculty um, who they lead have said, here's an area for development or here's an area where somebody's doing exceedingly well. So it provides us a platform to really then build our programs and then in turn evaluate our programs. And then, of course, the other thing it does is it provides us uh, some really interesting data to look at and to write about uh, and distribute beyond the IU School of Medicine and contribute to the greater body of knowledge about faculty development. Right. And what is the regularity of your leadership assessment? That's also every third year. So we do vitality one year, leadership one year, and then the the other third year, we do something related to diversity, since that's kind of the other pillar of our faculty affairs, professional development and diversity is our unit. And that has varied over time. So sometimes it's collecting a variety of data across sources. So there's items for example, on the Vitality Survey and the 360 that have to do with diversity and equity and inclusion. So we might pull those items. We might pull items uh, related to the medical student graduation questionnaire or the data from our GME learners and put that together to have a broad picture of issues of diversity. And then other years, we might just do a deep dive in what do hiring patterns and Uh, postings and application for faculty jobs, what does that look like in terms of diversity? Mm -hmm. So we change the angle or the question a little bit more on the uh, diversity year, but each of those is at once every third year. Now, how far down do you drill with a vitality tool? So who, at what level do you give these data feedback? Is it at the departmental division level? Because I'm guessing you don't drill down, for example, to the faculty level that the faculty person could then get their own personal results of what is their own personal vitality and review that with someone as, you know, a coach or a career navigator or during an annual review. Am I correct in thinking you maybe just give those data back to the department chair? Yeah, that's right. Although it's an interesting prospect and we are, our health system has been using the well-being index. And so, of course, the faculty are getting a view into their level of well-being or burnout, as it might be, relative to peers at our institution and nationally, of course. So that would be an interesting counter to that or additional piece of information for them. Uh, But yes, what we generally do is it's available at the chair level and then in the large departments. So our largest departments are surgery, medicine, pediatrics. In those departments, we are able to drill down to the division level. Mm -hmm. We will never issue a report if there's fewer than five people that are contained in that report That's right. so that we're protecting the faculty themselves. And so in some cases, you know, a division might not even have five responses. Um, and if they don't, then they wouldn't get a report. Right. So it is about trends versus individuals. But it, that, that's an interesting concept. And certainly we, um, we have the data to do that, although we don't link it back to the faculty. So we yeah. don't ask them a lot of demographics about them because we know that. Right. Um, and that's, behind the scenes in the survey tool, but it's not linkable after the data is collected. Mm. But it certainly is something we could consider. Now, um, when you, I'm still on this vitality tool, I'm curious, do you present the data 
at like a advisory board of the medical faculty. That's what we call it at Hopkins. It's the dean has these monthly meetings with all the department directors. They're called directors, not chairs. So I'm, I'm envisioning that you have a big presentation with here are the results of the vitality tool and you have bar charts of all your departments. And then there's a competition, if you will, for scores. Or is that not in your culture to do that, to see where departments rank and compare to other departments and then other like the double AMC or national statistics? How does that trending or those patterns, how are are they they presented to your leadership? Um, Yes, we do make a presentation and our group is called the School Executive Committee, same, you know, setup of associate deans, assistant deans, and then the uh, department chairs. So we do present the... Uh, overview of the findings there. We tend to present the findings by department uh, with the clinical faculty kind of group, the clinical departments rather grouped together, and then the basic science departments grouped together. But what we really present more of at that higher level is views into different profiles of faculty. So women faculty or URM faculty or faculty at certain ranks or time at an institution, Mm -hmm. at our institution. And so that's what we tend to provide in that particular setting. Now, each chair gets their own detailed report. And if they've been here for more than one cycle, they see all the historic data for the last however many cycles they've been here. And for several of our chairs, that could be, you know, three or four cycles so they can see the trend under their leadership Mm -hmm. in each of the areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, We don't tend to show them, and then we compare them, we give them data at the individual report level of them compared to the other clinical departments, and if that's statistically significant, if their difference is statistically significant or not. But we don't show that uh, largely across the school and identify which are the strongest departments or the most vital departments. And and frankly, the reason why we don't do that is because oftentimes those differences aren't statistically significant. They're not meaningful, but it looks like they are, right? If you line everybody up and say from top to bottom, well, it's really big chunks, right? It's probably the top third all are fairly similar and then the middle third and then the bottom third. Our dean meets with each chair and goes over the results in detail. And that is an opportunity to talk about some of the activities in the departments that do well uh-huh. to try and help those who are maybe in that bottom third to think about innovations or strategies. And then we offer, of course, that the chairs could meet with Mary or I to do more work in thinking about either faculty development or their own development. But they all do have an individual conversation with the dean going into detail of their specific results. And that's true for the Chair 360 as well. So that's nice that you've got that accountability baked in. Uh, so you, you're just, ex- I was just going to ask you the same question that you just kind of broached. Then when these data come in, does the faculty development happen then at the department level where, for instance, your chair goes, oh, okay, what do we got going on here? Yep. Looks like we need to do something with, you know, A, F, and L. And so they would contact you or Mary and then say, we need some programming here in our department to address these things. And, or do they say, geez, I need to send my faculty over yonder to the Office of Faculty Development down there and have them participate in those three items. Uh, so I'm just wondering then where is it local? Is, is all faculty development locally happening at the each you know state level or is it happening nationally? Is it, are they going to being sent to one place and then you're uh, delivering programming at, at one location? Right. That's a great question. And you probably won't be surprised that my answer is both. <laughs> of course. <yeah. laughs> that there are some things that work well globally and well-established programs, and if we can identify a specific group of faculty, if that's junior faculty or mid-career faculty or senior faculty, that you know, funneling them into other programs that are school-wide programs, particularly if some of the issues are related to not having a well-established network of colleagues or not knowing the resources that are available, um, then the strategy should be and often is, how can we plug them into existing things? If the pattern is consistent really across the faculty of an entire department, we, we would work directly with the leader in that department to talk about what could we or should we be doing locally. And we do have a faculty development coordinating committee for the school, and that committee serves essentially as an advisory committee to our unit. 
but they also, the members are a faculty development champion. So sometimes somebody who's in an official role and then other times somebody who's just interested. So it could be a residency program director or somebody who has a vice chair title or some sort of leadership title for faculty development or just a faculty member who's interested in faculty development. So we would collaborate with the champion and somebody in the department, either the chair or a designee of the chair, to think about what kind of activity could we do at the departmental level. And each department you know, has a different appetite for that. So right. some of our departments send people to us all the time and some say, no, it has to be for us and only us. And so it, there's a, a pretty wide variance in how we do that. And some is based on the availability of the faculty and that sort of thing as yeah. well. That that's always uh, been curious to me when I first came to Hopkins six and a half years ago, and when I did all the listening and learning tour and meeting with all the departmental directors. Dr. Mike Weisfeld was then the director of our largest department of medicine, of course, is the same. And he said all faculty development's local; it's just local. It all happens at the department level. And I thought, oh, okay, geez, there doesn't have good job security for me then if you're telling me <laughs> it's all happening locally and. I kind of got the impression, perhaps wrongly, that um, we don't need you at this level. We're, we got, we're, we're taking care of it right here. And so I'm curious, especially, I guess, that you're the perfect person to ask since, since you are, you hold the role at, as at the dean level, school level, but also your role in the emergency medicine department and you're doing faculty development there. Can you reflect on or help us understand those of us people like me who only do faculty development at the you know the national level if you will the big school level compared to what it looks like when it happens inside a department or at the state level what what um did, have you noticed or observed anything that is like a we don't trust them. They don't know what they're doing at the school level. We're so different and unique that they couldn't possibly develop us here. That's why we need to do this in-house, you know, almost kind of like, you know, a formative versus summative evaluations. You know, you got to do it inside. We don't trust those um, outside evaluators. Or or is there a, a recognition and an appreciation, but like they're doing great stuff there. We need to take that and duplicate it, replicate it here for us. You know, do you have a, can you share your sense of that di- difference from departmental level to school level faculty development? Sure. I, I do think my general feeling is that we need to do both. That departments, every department probably needs some local faculty development activity. And the notion that we're so unique and different and special, frankly, I have not found to actually be very accurate. I used to be the director of the teaching center for our host campus before I moved to the School of Medicine. And really good teaching is good teaching and there's contextual issues, but the the bigger issue is about how to develop great teachers or great researchers or writers or, you know, how to help somebody with their CV to prepare for promotion. And those don't have that much variance. Um, The, you know, the, attitude of the department, the behaviors of the department might have variance, but really I don't think um, that there's a ton. I mean, there is difference, of course, of faculty who are teaching in the OR versus faculty who are teaching in a lab and that sort of thing and the demands on time, um, but I, I don't think there's as much a difference as some of our leaders tend to say to people like me and you who do, you know, national, as you're calling it, faculty development. The benefit, I think, of local for me and our department is about creating a network of colleagues. So in yeah. emergency medicine, we have, um, at the academic health center, we have three separate emergency departments, and then we have five to six to seven, depending on <laughs> the year and the month, um, other de- emergency departments that are part of our group. So we've grown our group, and then we, you know, lose a contract and that sort of thing out of outside of the academic health center. So we have the academic health center has three, and then we add, let's call it five. So then we have eight emergency departments, and often faculty don't know each other in those other clinical departments. So right. their their orientation and their colleagues are simply the colleagues at the Children's Hospital or at the Trauma One or at the County Hospital. And so one of the huge benefits is discovering other colleagues and making a connection. So in EM right now, one of the things that our faculty development, we have a faculty development committee in the 
department as well. And many years ago, one of the things they suggested was a year-long new faculty orientation program, and we call it EM Jams, which is Jumpstart in Academic Medicine. EM Jams? EM, uh-huh, Emergency Medicine Jams. J-A-M-S, Jumpstart in Academic Medicine. My gosh, that's cool. Year <laughs> long. Yeah, so we meet monthly for just about two hours, a little over two hours, once a month, and cover a variety of topics from giving feedback to residents and students to conflict and negotiation uh, to giving an effective lecture, and we have a whole mentored program where the faculty pick a topic they're going to give for grand rounds, and then they have to do a practice session and get feedback on it. And then when they deliver their first lecture to our residents, it's always stellar. So their first impression of their first formal education or lecture is really quite impressive, consistently impressive. And so a variety of things, promotion and tenure we cover. We cover some stuff about writing and getting started in research, about leadership. So a variety of different topics. But the greatest value of that program, the content, I think, is good, and the faculty respond well to the content, but it's the relationships. It's knowing all the other first-year faculty, and we don't require mid-career people that we've recruited who have been faculty at other places, but they often come, and they have a ton to both learn and contribute as well. And the speakers are a mix of school speakers and departmental speakers. And so it's nice then to be able to feature the great work of a particular faculty member who might be incredibly skilled at giving feedback, for example, or was really smart about thinking about how to get connected to the school medicine committee. So they might come in and talk about service and service on the school at the school or in the health system. So it's a nice opportunity to give them a taste of what's available at the school level, but really focus on highlighting their colleagues who are doing really great work and building a relationship. And so I, to me, that's kind of the perfect um, solution is a little bit of both. Uh, I, I often, and I'll admit, I get frustrated sometimes in emergency medicine where they want me to offer, for example, I just did a needs assessment of the faculty to form the curriculum for the faculty development workshops for this coming year for emergency medicine. And, you know, one of the top rated things was how to get my CV in the right format for promotion. And, you know, in the meantime, we have online resources and we have workshops and we have right. consultations, <laughs> you know, at the school level. And you're like, and really? I, really? Do I really need to do this again for you? And, you know, and so I asked that question, and I think people felt like, well, maybe we just need an increased awareness about what is available. And mm-hmm. that, I think, is true in all the departments. And when they don't have, you know, a me or they don't have an active faculty development champion on that committee, they sometimes are replicating things that already exist and maybe exist in a better format. So that's, that's what we ex- hope we can yes, get that, rid that's of over ex- time. That's exactly where I was going with it when you were talking was – that, first of all, the EMGMs program is amazing. And yes, I totally agree with you that building community networking, that's the best feature and the most commonly reported, evaluated uh, response we get is I love meeting colleagues and friends. I'm not alone. It reduces isolation and barriers. And yes, so we know that all these long-term cohort programs are, are wonderful, wonderful for, for building community. And as you were talking, I'm thinking, now, wait a minute. Yeah, you're there in emergency medicine, but what right. about some of these other departments that don't have, obviously, you or someone from the school level? And then how do they go about building programs that are faculty development outside of us at the school level? And I, and I say that, uh, uh, that's got recognizing that there, there are pros and cons to this. The, the, Meaning doing this alone as like renegade, they're going rogue, they're going on themselves, doing it, building faculty development that, that we're just tra la la skipping down the hallway and lo and behold, stumble across the fact that in my instance, we, we only do a new faculty orientation in the fall once a year at the school level. And then the tra-la-la down the hallway one day, it literally falling over a, a three-ring binder that was like five inches thick. And I looked at, what in the world is this? It was the Department of Medicine's 
annual faculty orientation binder. And I thought, and I picked it, I said, what in the world is this? This is fantastic. It was just beautiful. It was comprehensive. It had, it was just the whole guidebook for how, you know, you're welcome to the Department of Medicine. And between you and me and the bookshelf and whoever's listening to this podcast, uh, it blew ours out of the water. Right. I was like, I was so embarrassed that I thought, oh my gosh. And I took that binder and I said, I got to go show this to my boss. And I'm like, look what they're doing in the Department of Medicine. This is fantastic. We need to be doing this. And I was just so, you know, it was so it's a good, that was a good example. And I can't help but think that there are bad examples too, where we would, any of us would lo and behold, find out some department is doing faculty development with air quotes around it. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's cuckoo crazy pants. What? Why are you right. doing that? Or as you just said, Megan, why are you? Re- I can't believe you went through all the effort of doing this. We already have that. Or even worse yet, you're giving them wrong advice about promotion or right. whatever, whatever, right. whatever. So, how do you? What are your thoughts on that kind of um, working together, cross purposes? How do you know, what uh, obligation do we have to make sure everybody knows what's going on? You have these nice committees, these faculty development coordinating committees, but I still bet you see a lot of good work and bad work. And how do we make sure faculty are getting the consistent message uh, across the board? Right. Yeah, it's a challenge. And you're right that there are some amazing, great examples. And then there are others that I worry about. You know, we have we offer P&T drop-in office hours, and on more than one occasion, somebody's come, you know, faculty members come to those office hours and told me about, you know, an event that they went to a lunch and learn or something in their department where they got advice about their CV or their personal statement um, that is probably the opposite of either our guidelines or the advice that we would give mm. either on from the med school or even from the campus. And so that, you know, does make me nervous. What we try and do is, you know, emphasize constantly to the chairs that were their partners. And if there's a vice chair for education or if there's a faculty development committee or there's somebody in their department who sort of keeps an eye on faculty development, sometimes as a residency program director, especially in some of our smaller departments, that they make sure that they know that we're available. And so if that's we're available to be a co-presenter, we're this Sometimes I've gone to sessions where I just sit in the back and chime in and add things or maybe correct things or nudge Mm. things in a slightly different direction. Mm -hmm. But there are still plenty of times, I mean, even big speakers, like there's times when I get a flyer about somebody who's coming to speak for, you know, grand rounds in one of our departments who's a great educator and does a lot of faculty development that I'm think, wow, what a missed opportunity. (laughs) The Mm. department, it's great the department is doing that, but if only that person had reached out to us, that could have been a collaborative effort, and it would have saved them a little bit of money as well, and we would have had other faculty get exposed to that individual or those concepts. So it, it is a constant struggle, and we've debated about should we have assistant deans who are liaisons in each different department, and when we select assistant deans, we make sure we have some good spread. So, you know, we do have somebody from medicine and somebody from Mm -hmm. surgery and somebody from OB and somebody from pediatrics, you know, but we're not going to hit every department. One of the benefits for us uh, and our group is that we are also responsible for chair search and screen or executive search and screen. So our unit essentially has an in-house search firm so that means all our searches for executives are co-chaired by one of the assistant or associate deans or Mary or myself with somebody with a chair or a leader in a specialty or discipline that's similar to the one, not usually in that one, but related field. And so each of those searches are co-chaired. So that what that means is we're getting in front of every single one of those candidates from the minute, you know, it's a screening interview, well, reading their CV, screening interview, an on-campus interview, and then they're onboarding. And so one of the benefits of that, that when we decided to make this in-house uh, search firm was we didn't expect an unexpected benefit was that these candidates who now become our chairs or leaders have a deeper connection to us than Mm. when we weren't involved in that. So they already see us as a resource. And then because we co-chair those often with another department chair. So for example, several years ago, I co-chaired one with the 
the chair of neurosurgery. And, you know, in no short order, I was getting all kinds of messages from the chair of neurosurgery about, hey, what should I do about this? How can I do this? And it was because we had worked collaboratively on this chair search. Mm-hmm. Um, but our new hires definitely come to us much more quickly, ask us to help with their strategic planning retreats or thinking about a plan for faculty development mm-hmm. and see us as a resource much faster than sometimes some people who have been around a lot longer and we didn't have that kind of infrastructure. And, and you know, I mean, our unit has gotten bigger and we have more resources available as well. And so that's changed. And so sometimes it's with the newer leaders that it's easier than with the long-term leaders. Gotcha. Now that kind of leads me back backwards a little bit when you were talking about your vitality tool. Do you include questions that reflect back on the value of your office and the and the resources you offer at the school level. So are there some questions that you could then pull out to show to your dean, ta-da, X percent of the faculty have said that they have reached out to us or engaged with us or, you know, aware of us, right. uh, find us valuable. Is that um, built into your vitality tool as well? Sort of yes and no. So there are some questions specifically to professional development and have you engaged in professional development around a variety of different topics in big, broad buckets, so education development or research development or um, development related to diversity and inclusion. But a faculty member could be saying, I did that, and they did that locally in their department or in their professional society, 100%. So the other thing that we do is when we prepare our data file before the survey goes out, I told you that we tag a bunch of demographic data so that we don't have to ask the faculty, are you an assistant, are you an associate? That's connected to their specific link that's sent to them. Their name and any other identifying information is stripped. The other thing we do is pre-populate that with some data about were they, are they alumni of our year-long orientation or leadership program that we offer to faculty in their first two years called Uh LAMP Leadership and Academic Medicine Program? Have they attended you know, we, we have, we usually make a cutoff of, you know, three or more events or five or more events either related to a specific topic or broadly. So then we can look and see are there differences between those that have done some of these things and those who have not yes. done that. And we can also do that at the departmental level. And of course, similarly, we, you know, we have this database. So of, faculty participation in our activities. So we can do some analyses of these are the departments that have high level of participation. And then is there a difference in any of their responses at the departmental level? But we are able to do that um, because we tag people. And so we also have done that, for example, for residency program directors or clerkship directors so that we could see if there are trends or patterns there, or we we would want to do some specific outreach for some of those groups that are really important leaders on a campus. Um, So we are able to do that and see some trends and outcomes related to, you know, our own work as well, certainly. So what I was thinking with that question, that is brilliant, of course, talk about evidence. Um, And it reminds me of what Mary said. She talked about the question that's her predecessor or her mentor, Steve Bodwick, said, do you want to believe you're doing good or do you want to know you're doing good? And so I love how all your evidence ties back to this. But when I was thinking about that question on the vitality tool, so it's one thing to build a relationship with a new hire, a new leader, and they get you, they understand where you're coming from, and then they, they, they build on this really relationship. They get it. But it's another thing that if you have some of the old timers around there who maybe came up through the system and there really wasn't a robust faculty development offering, so they, they've kind of just not really paid much attention to you. But if those data points are in the survey that every year or every three years, they're getting results that talk about this. And more so if they're actually seeing statistical analyses comparing this group of engaged faculty versus the unengaged faculty, that to me, those data speak volumes that um, even if they don't have a relationship with you, they better get on the stick because you you are documenting this evidence. You're showing uh, the difference between people who do this kind of stuff and who don't do this stuff. So wow, awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, we had a, a great example of that is, so our, we have the program, as I mentioned, LAMP, Leadership and Academic Medicine Program, and it is for faculty in their second and third years, and it's about really leading where you are, but there's also, you know, sort of faculty one-on-one survival, you know, getting resources, understanding promotion and tenure, that kind of stuff is also there, but it, it, it has a strong leadership component to the curriculum. And we've done some analyses of what do those LAMP graduates look like compared to similar folks who didn't participate in LAMP. And part of that, I mean, because we want to know, you know, what what are the outcomes? Can we say that it looks like there's some differences here? Um, And because of those positive differences that we were retaining LAMP faculty, you know, more than we were retaining other faculty. And, you know, maybe that's Mm -hmm. a self-selection. They are nominated. So, you know, there's always some questions about what's happening there. But there were other activities that they were participating in. You know, they're on committees more. They We've looked at some things related to their promotion rates. Those look better. And there's a lot of different activities where the LAMP participants have better outcomes than similar faculty who did not participate in LAMP. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a period in time where we were really having difficulty getting the basic science faculty or chairs, rather, to nominate their faculty that participate in LAMP because they were quite concerned, giving uh, the pressure of funding and what's happening with grant funding, that you know, they didn't want to take their faculty away from really focusing on getting funded. They couldn't afford it. And it was great to be able to have that data and say, basically, you can't afford not to do this. Mm. Like, this is worth your investment. You know, look at, look at the differences we know from faculty who have participated in this and their long-term success rate. It's worth letting them have this time to do this. And so that, that really did help us to be able to have yeah. more than, hey, it's a good idea. It's the right thing to do. I mean, that wasn't going to sell it enough. Right. Now, how do you, I want to get down a little bit to nitty gritty here because I'm so envious. How do you capture all these data points? Every all these variables you've been mentioning, how who cat who captures these and how do you capture them? Can you give a, just a little bit of how that happens and what your database or your system looks like where you can just pull these different um, attributes? Yeah, so we have a couple of different, well, really two systems. So we have a fairly robust, essentially an events database. So faculty register for our events. Or they walk in and sign their name in, and then on the back end, we enter into the database that this person attended this event. We note faculty, you know, who are participants of long-term cohort-based programs and other activities. And so we have, you know, a record of what that faculty member has done over time, including which are the things that they've signed up for and didn't come to, as well as what did they come to. Um, and that gives us also some lens into, you know, are there specific patterns about places where people sign up and don't come? And, um, you know, what's more, more popular? It gives us a great lens into are there trends in, you know, certain days and times that we have a higher no-show rate, so let's quit planning programs at that point because right. <laughs> those don't seem to be working well. So it gives us some good data on that. And then we have to match um, that database to our faculty record system. And we actually use a homegrown faculty record system, and hopefully we'll be moving out of that um, system to a more commercial system. So we have our own kind of replica uh, faculty database that keeps all the information about hire date and, you know, promotions and everything, everything, you know, from the minute that they applied for a job until they retire from a job, all those data points. So we match those two things. And over time, um, so for several years, we had a graduate assistant who's worked with us and who has helped us to be able to do some of this analysis. And over time, we were able, because our office you know, has grown and because of some of the stuff related to search and screen that we've taken on, that has moved from a grad assistant to a full-time director of evaluation and assessment. And so I have a PhD in, you know, who's an education and researcher who works with us on looking at all of this data and, you know, is quite skilled at doing so and then can also provide opportunities for doctoral students for either internships or practicum or just project-based work that helps them in their own growth. And because I, you know, I'm faculty in the School of Education, um, you know, I have easy access to individuals who have that background and who mm-hmm. want that kind of exposure. So it's been, you know, it really started with students, um, but now, as I said, I have 
somebody who's an associate research scientist who uh, worked at a out of IU Bloomington at a, on a national survey project that we were able to recruit, who now is our uh, full-time mm. director. So before it was me and some grad students, and now it's um, Amy Ribera, our um, full-time person, and then me and mm. some graduate students. All right, stop talking <laughs> Amy about really it. Takes the stop lead talking now. about it. I'm so green with envy <laughs> right now. I can't even stand myself. <laughs> Good for you. That is just incredible. Now, I imagine that you have like a, a regular reporting schedule that it sounds like with this kind of capacity and what you've built there, I imagine you minimally produce some fancy annual report and then probably interim reports that you could probably run by women and UIMs and by associate professor. And I'm sure any de- your dean or a department chair could call you up and you could just click, click, click and run a report by department on faculty. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> we don't. Interestingly, we haven't done a full sort of annual report since, oh my gosh, since forever. I mean, Steve was the, Steve Bajo was the executive associate dean at the time, and Mary and I were both assistant deans, so this has been many, many years that we've run a full annual report. What we do instead is we have a three-year cycle of program evaluation, and so we really do it kind of program or groupings of programs mm-hmm. at a time instead of the entirety of everything that we're doing. Right. Um, but, yes, we can do that. And, you know, I mean, there are some of the departments that give – ERVUs to faculty for participation in faculty development. And so similarly, we, we can pull a report and provide to that department so that those faculty can get credit. And then we also have some place in the system and the online system that a faculty member can go in and even run their own report. So if they want to include that in their CV or in their annual review, they could say, here are the faculty development activities I did this year without having to remember, mm. backtrack, and find their calendar. Okay. So we are we are able to do that and, and can look at patterns. And, you know, there are some chairs who certainly will ask for that. You know, they'll ask for sort of more um, – detailed analyses of what's happening with their faculty, whether that's participation in events or if that's, um, you know, promotion rates or that sort of thing. The one report that we always um, do provide annually is a state of the faculty report that looks at trends around demographics, so rank, track, you know, campuses. We have nine campuses at the IU School of Medicine, so data by campus, by women, and so on and so forth, and so different cuts and um, slices and dices of, you know, what do our current faculty look like? So if that's time and rank, if it's time to promotion, if it's retention, um, new hires, the difference between, you know, percentage of tenure track, tenured and clinical rank faculty. And so that's available. And, and that's a, a great tool. And, and honestly, some of our faculty are more senior faculty who are writing some training grants, it's incredibly helpful for them because they can get a quick glimpse on sort of what is the ground for who we are here and how can I make an argument that I need this training grant. So that's been helpful for them as well. All right. That report we do always every year. Frowny face emoji inserted here, Megan. I'm this is (laughs) amazing and I'm just getting more and more crunchy sitting here listening to you. (laughs) Hold the phone, back up the train. You said something like E R V use. Mm-hmm. Are you implying or do you mean to tell me that whenever your faculty at Indiana University partake in a faculty development activity, they're getting like CME or ERV? What are you talking about? They get credit for this so that it's not costing them per se? Yeah, and they're not. Um, so it's by department. So that incentive structure is by department. So but some of you know medicine and pediatrics both use ERVU systems. So if they participate in faculty development activities, either at the department, division level, or at the school level, they get some credit for that. Now, it doesn't equal, you know, the dollar amount of, you know, it's not the relative value unit of clinical work, of course. So it's not like a clinical RVU. But it is taken into consideration. And similarly, if they, you know, their teaching activity would generate RVUs based on, you know, if they're teaching, um, you know, intro to clinical medicine, if they're teaching residents in their clinic and so on and so forth, that each of those activities comes with a certain amount of credit. And the idea is that, 
you know, you're often losing some of your clinical RVUs when you're engaged in a high level of education. And so this is a way to offset some of what could be potential loss on the clinical RVU side. So some of our larger departments have do have an incentive-based program where they do that. Other departments don't have that, but are interested in having the faculty report on, you know, how much did they do that activity. So that is something that some of the departments at the School of Medicine and at the IU School of Medicine are engaged in. So do they get a certain number of chits to play? Do they get a certain number of ERVUs per year? Like every faculty member gets the equivalent of eight hours of faculty development per year? Or is it just, eh, we'll keep track of it. And then at some point, they're going to like, wait a minute, what are you doing having 100 ERVUs and you're not generating money? I mean, how does that work? Yeah, it's it's dependent on the division and the department. Um, they generally don't have them at set at the front end. If they're cl- if they, like in the Department of Medicine, they have identified people that they call key clinical educators. So they're carrying a much high, higher clinical education load. So there would be an expectation that their ERVUs would be, you know, in a certain range. For others, it's you know volunteer work. Really, it's on the you know it's extra that they're doing. I mean, they they have to contribute to the education mission, but some of this is above and beyond just a normal contribution to the education mission. And so it's just part, it's taken into account when they also are looking at their clinical RVUs. Mm. So it's not dollar for dollar. It's not, you know, one for one in any way, but it's a picture of mm-hmm. their contribution. And so some are counted as ERVUs. Um, but for some of those key clinical educators, yes, there would be an expectation that they have a certain number mm-hmm. of ERVUs. Wow. And then this is proof that they did have, in fact, those. So you're saying like at the annual review time, that that is a, a field or a a characteristic that the reporters run and say, oh, I see you've seen, you've, you have this many ERVUs, and that would Correct. be somewhat measure of good or bad or neutral. Right, that's right. And so medicine and pediatrics are the two departments that do yeah. that the most. Some of the others give credit, you know, sort of citizenship or mm-hmm. professional development credit for these activities, but not in that same kind of that highly sophisticated, involved somewhat uh-huh. bean counting way. Now, are, do you, is CME part of your offerings as well, or is that different, or how do, do you offer CME credit? For- yeah, so we offer CME credit for a variety of the activities um, that we have sponsored by Faculty Affairs Professional Development and Diversity, but not all. And frankly, it's, you know, because we can't, we don't have the budget <laughs> to pay for all of the CME for all of the events because we host about 100 or 150 events a year. Right. So it's, it's a lot. Um, but for some of our bigger events, we do offer CME. And particularly, we have some events that we pull in a lot of community people and volunteer faculty. And so they are at a need for CME more than the academic health center faculty, there's an abundance of CME available for them. And so uh, in those events, for example, we have a two-day LGBTQ healthcare conference mm-hmm. that is sponsored by FAPDD. The diversity team leads that up. And that draws a lot of community physicians. And so we offer CME for an event like that. We might not offer it for the leadership series we do for chairs. Sure. Uh, you know, that, that they don't need that. They have other opportunities to get CME. Right. So we, we're, we, you know, sort of pick and choose where we think um, the audience is going to be most interested in being able to get some CME. And oftentimes that is um, when we do things um, that involve people outside of the academic health center, though we have plenty of offerings mm. at the academic health center that come with CME too. Yeah. Wow. You've got it all figured out. I remember when Mary was talking about the mini sabbaticals that you offer for your associate professors where they can right. go, oh, I'm, I'm like, oh, I've never heard of such a thing. You guys have figured this stuff out. Good for you. Well, I don't, I don't know if we figured it out, but we're certainly in an environment where we're willing to experiment and try things. And, you know, some of them work really well and some of them don't. And then we move on and figure out the next way to do it. But it is, you know, I mean, it is amazing to be in an environment where, um, you know, we're, we're valued and we're seen as an important part of the school and turned to regularly. And so that does mean we get, you know, some resources and support that, I, you know, a lot of my faculty development friends around the country are one shop 
uh, one person shop trying to do the best they can on a shoestring budget. And we have really been lucky to have deans that have really been willing to invest in this. And, I, you know, and truly in part because we've been able to show some of the outcomes. Right. That's it. Um, so that's been helpful, certainly. But, and, and you know, the, frankly, <laughs> having a successful in-house search firm has really, you know, made us popular among the leadership. And so that also helps us. Mm-hmm you know, that we're we're getting really great leaders and competing with, you know, the WIC keepers and other search firms in the country mm-hmm. um, and not spending the money that we would be spending if we did multiple searches with external firms. And so because that's our group, we get in front of the leadership a lot in the school yeah. because of searches. And so then they have a level of awareness of what we do that sometimes if what you're doing is, you know, faculty affairs and faculty development, you might not get that kind of exposure that's that right. we are able to get. Wow. Awesome. 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 Oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. I'm just so <laughs> this is just a... Megan, this is wonderful. Did you want to share anything else with with us? I know we've talked about so much today. I don't think so. I, I guess one sort of fun fact that I could share with you is that um, I had listened to several of the other podcasts, and I know when I go to GFA meetings and interact with other people, both inside academic medicine and outside of academic medicine who do faculty development, that almost nobody. Um, you know, decided I'm going to be a faculty developer when I grow up. Right, right. <laughs> but I'm, but I'm the unicorn, <laughs> and yeah. so I did my PhD in higher education. And during my PhD program, I uh, had a faculty member, Nancy Van Note Chisholm, is her name, and she's an emeritus faculty now. And she was very well established person in faculty development in higher education broadly, not in academic medicine. So she had made her whole career at Ohio State, but was internationally known and has done a ton about peer review of teaching. It's probably where she's most well-known is about peer review of teaching, has a book that's widely used. And so she was a faculty member of mine, and so I got exposed really early in my Ph.D. program um, to Nancy in the work of faculty development and started doing some observations and activities with the Center for Teaching and Learning. And so while I was going through my PhD program, I thought, well, gosh, this faculty development thing, I might want to do this oh my when gosh. I grow up. And so that, that was my first job post-PhD was in a teaching center as an instructional um, designer. And then I, you know, eventually was the director of the teaching center and then collaborated a lot with the med school and so then moved to the med school. So, you know, not my whole professional career, but, you know, from my PhD, during my PhD program on, um, that that was what I wanted to do. And it is, you know, it's always been what I've studied, you know. So what I study is faculty and faculty vitality and college teaching and medical education and that sort of thing. So I'm a little bit of a unicorn in, in this world. <laughs> Well, that's why I've been going crazy. I've been talking to a unicorn this whole time. That's why my spidey senses were all on alert here. You are. You're, you're exactly right. Nobody, I, I never even heard of this. You know, I, yeah. everybody you talk to, they've, you know, fallen backwards into it and go, Oh, look at here. So you, you are right. We will have to be on the search for, uh, fellow unicorns, but this yeah, I is... think there's some out there. There's definitely some out there. Well, we'll have to find them, but you definitely got your magic rainbows and <laughs> everything at Indiana University. Um, now I understand why you're there. It makes sense. It's all yeah, happening. It's a great place. Yes. Well, thanks, Megan. We've been talking to Dr. Megan Palmer, Indiana University, Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs, Professional Development and Diversity. Megan, thanks so much. Um, We'll we'll see everybody else later on the Faculty Factory podcast. Chime in, call in. Megan's calling me from a phone, actually her neighbor's landline. But I'm (laughs) in my basement. You can call too and join in the conversation. Thanks, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.